This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. We are a little bit delayed in this, but this is Trades Part 2 here on MLB Morning Coffee, the second part of our trade deadline special. We're delayed on it because we wanted to see how things have been playing out over the course of the last week since these trades occurred. And we want to evaluate where those teams are at in the course of their chase for a playoff spot. So we are going to recap all of the trades that occurred on July 30th, the trade deadline. And we'll first start off with the San Francisco Giants acquisition of Cubs outfielder infielder Chris Bryant. The Giants acquired Bryant from the Chicago Cubs in exchange for outfield prospect Alexander Canario and right-handed pitching prospect Caleb Killian. In my opinion, Bryant was the best available player position-wise at the deadline. He's a four-time All-Star, a Rookie of the Year, and won the 2016 NL MVP. This year with the Cubs, Bryant was hitting 267 with a 358 on base, a 503 slugging, good for an OPS of 861, well above league average. He had 18 homers and drove in 51 runs. So far with the Giants, he's just 2 for 12, but again, a small sample size over the course of the first few games in San Francisco. Bryant homered in his debut with the Giants on Sunday against the Houston Astros, and San Francisco is 2-1 and one in games in which Bryant has played in. Canario was the ninth-ranked prospect in the Giants system, while Killian was the 30th. Canario is closer to reaching the big leagues than pretty much anybody that the Cubs have acquired over the course of the last year and a half. But that isn't really saying much, considering he was playing at low A San Jose, where he hit .235 with 9 homers and 29 driven in. It says something about the state of the Chicago Cubs system that he gets traded to the Cubs organization and immediately starts with high A South Bend, where he has three hits in eight at-bats so far. Canario is somebody that the Giants hope, at just age 21, can be a part of their outfield core moving forward. Caleb Killian? He's one of many minor league pitchers that hopefully will get to the bigs at some point in the next couple of years. This season split between Double A Richmond and High A Eugene. He was 6-2 with a 2.13 ERA over 15 starts spanning 84 and two-thirds innings. He's a strike thrower. He has 96 strikeouts to just nine walks. And if there's something every organization needs, it's a guy that throws strikes. Buster Olney described on Sunday Night Baseball a couple of weeks ago the Cubs being the buffet table for the rest of Major League Baseball. And they made two more trades on the deadline day, with the first of them being across town. Craig Kimbrell to the Chicago White Sox. Of all of the trades that the Cubs made around the deadline, of which there were five, the best return that they got was for Craig Kimbrell. Kimbrell was traded to the Chicago White Sox for two big league players, injured second baseman Nick Madrigal, and right-handed relief pitcher Cody Hoyer. 
Kimbrell is having a career year. With the Cubs, he had a .49 ERA across 39 appearances. In 36 and two-thirds innings, he had 23 saves, 64 strikeouts to just 13 walks, an opponent's batting average of just 106. In his first two appearances with the White Sox, he hasn't allowed a run, he hasn't allowed a hit, he doesn't have a save yet, but he's done his job out of the bullpen. The thing for the White Sox is that they've created a super bullpen where you can go to any of Hendricks, Kimbrell, Crochet, Kopech, Tapera at any point in the game. Kopech and Hendricks can go multiple innings. So in theory, you could have your starter go four innings, which if you're the White Sox, why would you do that? You have one of the best starting rotations in baseball, but your bullpen can shut it down. Now, some guys will be off on certain nights, but the White Sox have added a lot of depth to their bullpen. Now the return. Nick Madrigal was seen as the White Sox second baseman of the future and was the second baseman of the present until he tore his hamstring. Madrigal is out for the year, but the thing about him is that he is the best contact hitter in baseball with two strikes. White Sox fans called him Nicky Two Strikes because he was that good in regards to putting the ball in play. His contact rate with two strikes was somewhere around 99%. And for his career, he has a paltry 7.4 strikeout rate. Nick Madrigal puts the ball in play, but he doesn't really have much power, and defensively, he's limited to second base. Nico Horner, who was penciled in as the Cubs' second baseman of the future, will now be their shortstop of the future because the Cubs made another trade. We'll get to that in just a moment. But Cody Hoyer is somebody that came up quickly through the White Sox organization. He was drafted in the sixth round back in 2018 out of Wichita State University, made his debut in 2020 in the White Sox bullpen, was very good last year, but struggled this year with an ERA above five. He has the opportunity to be a Cubs closer for years to come. In his two appearances with the Cubs, he hasn't allowed a run and he hasn't allowed a hit but he's also not struck out anybody at this point. Last year with the White Sox, he had a 1.52 ERA across 23 and two-thirds innings of work. He's still pretty young. He's 25 years of age, and he's not an unrestricted free agent until the 2026 season. He's got closer stuff, and I bet he's the Cubs closer at some point before the end of this year. We mentioned the Cubs made another trade, and that was their current shortstop, who is now their shortstop of the past, and the New York Mets' second baseman of the present and potentially future, that would be a one, Javier Baez. So of all the trades that the Cubs made on deadline day, this is the one where they gave up the most and got back the least. Javier Baez, along with right-handed starting pitcher Trevor Williams, were sent to the New York Mets along with cash for outfield prospect Pete Crow Armstrong. Baez, this season with the Cubs, hit 243 with 22 homers and 65 runs driven in. Pardon me, 248. His current average is 243, including his stats with the Mets. Baez will be the shortstop until Francisco Lindor comes back, in which he will shift over to second base, and the two best friends, they are best friends from everything that we know, will be a double play combination. Javi is an unrestricted free agent after this year, and more than likely, now that he's playing with Lindor, who's locked up in New York for the next 10-plus years, 
I would imagine that Baez will stay put and be the Mets' second baseman. Trevor Williams is even more of an important piece now, given that Jacob deGrom's timeline has been pushed back into September. So the Mets need starting pitching depth, and that is what Williams provides, given that there's no deGrom and still no Noah Syndergaard. So for New York, this was a very practical trade. They gave up an outfield prospect who was the Mets' first-round pick last year. The Cubs are hoping that he turns into a future outfield piece. He was the number five prospect in the Mets organization by MLB Pipeline. He is still a long ways away. He's just 19 years of age, and he is recovering from right shoulder surgery for a labral articular disruption. So he's not going to play at all this year, and that's a guy you won't see potentially until 2024. But for the Mets, they fill two needs, and they don't really give up much for him. I don't know what the Cubs were doing other than banking on the future potential of Pete Crow Armstrong. The Brewers added to their bullpen by acquiring lefty Daniel Norris from the Detroit Tigers and righty John Curtis from the Miami Marlins. It didn't take much to get either of these two guys. Peyton Henry, a minor league catcher that was penciled in to be a part of the big league club in the next couple of years, will go back to the Marlins in exchange for Curtis. Reese Olsen, who is currently pitching at High A Wisconsin, goes back to Detroit in exchange for Norris. Curtis has not gotten off to a good start since joining the crew. He's allowed six runs in three appearances, spanning just an inning and two-thirds. But he was darn good in Miami this year, holding a 2.48 ERA in 40 innings of work, 40 strikeouts to just nine walks. He had a FIP of 3.21, which is pretty good, but not as good as his ERA. FIP is Fielder's independent pitching percentage. Daniel Norris was holding lefties to an OPS of 550, although his ERA is not very good this year. Combined between the Brewers and the Tigers, it was above six, but this is somebody that they are going to use strictly in left-on-left situations. It's depth, and it didn't cost much, which is why the Brewers continue to outsmart everybody else in their division. Desperate to get back into the division race and separate themselves in the AL wildcard race, the Oakland A's made another trade for a pair of offensive pieces, both coming from the Washington Nationals in catcher Jan Gomes and infielder Josh Harrison, both are free agents after this season. Gomes with the Nats was hitting 275 with 13 home runs in 95 games. Harrison, meanwhile, was hitting 292 over the course of 90 games with six home runs, 38 runs driven in, and an on-base percentage of 366, an OPS of 800. The A's did not have to give up much in return, sending minor leaguers Drew Millis, Seth Schumann, and Richard Guach, all three currently at the high A and the low A levels. The A's know that their competitive window is coming to a close and they're going to have to make difficult decisions on their corner infielders, Matt Olson and Matt Chapman. So they figure, while we still have the rotation to go for it, even without Jesus Lazardo, they still have a very good Sean Manaya, a very surprisingly solid Cole Irvin, a staff ace in Chris Bassett, and a coming into his own Frankie Montas. The A's have a chance to get the second wild card, or maybe even the first wild card. The division at this point is going to be difficult, but the A's did at the deadline, including the previous acquisition of Starling Marte, what they had to do, and that is get 
better bats in the lineup because the A's are competitive despite having one of the worst offenses in baseball this year. Speaking of a team that's all in for the second wild card, that dictionary definition will also be applied to the Toronto Blue Jays, who acquired Jose Barrios from the Twins in exchange for Austin Martin, a shortstop and outfielder, and Simeon Woods Richardson, a right-handed pitcher. First to the two prospects. Martin was the fifth overall pick in the 2020 draft and the number two prospect in the Toronto system. Woods Richardson was drafted in the second round in 2018 at just 17 years of age and has made it all the way up to AA. He is currently competing with Team USA over in Tokyo. These are two high-level prospects, and Martin is already up to AA as well. He has a chance to make a big league roster at some point in the next year or two, and with the Twins' outfield situation pretty solidly put, my guess is is that he'll probably crack the infield at some point if Josh Donaldson departs in the offseason and if Andrelton Simmons departs in the offseason. But the Twins still have a lot of question marks going into next year. They just were able to get a very high return in exchange for Berrios. One of the reasons why is that Berrios is not a free agent until after next year. He was having a career year with the Twins, going 7-5 with a 3-4-8 ERA across 20 starts. In one start with Toronto, he went six shutout innings and got the win, issuing one walk and striking out seven. Berrios, in his six full seasons at the big league level, has had an ERA under four in four of them. So he's a very solid candidate to be consistent moving forward. He's only 27 years of age, and you add him to a Toronto rotation next year that should be a lot better, you could pencil in the Blue Jays as serious contenders. But that's not all that the Blue Jays did on deadline day because they went out and got themselves another bullpen arm in veteran Joaquim Soria. So they got Brad Hand the day before, Jose Berrios early in the morning on deadline day, and then they got Joaquim Soria. Soria has not been great this year. He has a 4-3 ERA, but he was also playing for the Diamondbacks. He's on his ninth team in 14 seasons, and he has 229 career saves, so he could be used as a closer alongside Brad Hand. This is a trade that you make in order to bolster your bullpen now without paying a high price. The price that they paid? Two players to be named later, which given that the Diamondbacks really didn't have much leverage, those could be any assortment of guys. So the Blue Jays went aggressive as well at the deadline. But how about the Atlanta Braves? So in a variety of different deals, the Atlanta Braves decided hey, we're not out of this thing yet. So the Braves acquired Eddie Rosario, who is currently injured, from the Cleveland Indians in exchange for Pablo Sandoval, who was immediately released. Shows you the intent of that trade. They then went out and got outfielder Jorge Soler from the Kansas City Royals in exchange for minor league prospect right-hander Casey Kalich. Then they got back somebody that they used to have in outfielder Adam Duvall from the Miami Marlins in exchange for catcher Alex Jackson, who has two phones, by the way. That's a Kevin Gates reference. And they got Richard Rodriguez, the closer from the Pirates, in exchange for Bryce Wilson and Ricky DeVito. I don't quite understand why the Atlanta Braves have gone as all-in as they have, but they truly believe that they can still win the National League East. 
And what they did, bringing in guys like Soler, Jock Peterson earlier in the month, Adam Duvall, is that they're trying to piece together an outfield that no longer has Ronald Acuna Jr. They're trying to bolster a bullpen that has not been good on the back end by getting Richard Rodriguez. They are all in to win the division this year. And the reason why is that they have underperformed their expectations the entire season. And with Jacob deGrom, as we mentioned earlier, not set to come back until September at the earliest, there is an opening. Now, the Phillies are also a part of that conversation, and they made a couple of deals. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the Atlanta Braves have shown that they believe they can still win the division with two months left to go in the season. The question is... Do the Braves have enough? And I don't know if they have enough yet. All I can tell you is, is that my power rankings in the National League are as follows. Giants, Dodgers, Padres in that order. Then the Brewers. And then any other team in the National League after that. The Brewers are far and away better than any other team in the NL Central. Maybe the Reds have a chance to catch them if they get really hot. But everybody else in the NL Central is below average to, let's just face it, really bad, looking at you, Pittsburgh Pirates. But I believe that the Braves have a chance to win the National League East. I just don't think that they can win a playoff series against any of the other four teams that are more than likely going to make the playoffs in the National League. And if they end up winning the National League East, more than likely they'll face off against the NL Central winner, the Brewers, because it'll be second-best divisional record against third-best divisional record, and then the best divisional record against whoever wins the wild card, and the wild card is coming out of the National League West. Atlanta is in it to win it in the National League East. Where that gets them after that, nobody yet knows. The Philadelphia Phillies' attempt at staying relevant in the National League East revolves all around their pitching. They made a couple of trades. First, the one they made with the Texas Rangers, when they picked up Kyle Gibson, a starter, and relief pitchers Ian Kennedy and Hans Kruse, along with cash from the Rangers, in exchange for Spencer Howard, Kevin Gowdy, and Josh Gessner. Gibson adds a piece to a rotation that's been starting Matt Moore for a majority of the season. Gibson has an ERA of 2.87 through 20 starts, a 7-3 record, 119 and two-thirds innings pitched, 99 strikeouts to 43 walks. So Gibson is an immediate plus to the Phillies rotation, and he has a year left on his contract. His contract expires after the 2022 season. He's 33 years of age, so this is a year-plus contract. Ian Kennedy, who has over 300 career starts in his big league career, is now a strict bullpen guy. Kennedy with the Rangers this year had 16 saves and a 2.51 ERA. He hasn't been good since he's come to Philadelphia, but he's somebody that provides stability at the back end of their bullpen, and he is a free agent after this season, so the Phillies don't have to commit to him to a longer term, given that he's 36 years of age. Hans Kruis is at Double A Frisco, or was at Double A Frisco. He has a 3.35 ERA this season across 13 starts spanning 51 innings, 54 strikeouts to 19 walks. This is somebody that the Phillies are probably hoping is going to end up being in their rotation in the next year or two. He was the Rangers' second-round pick back in 2017. 
The Phillies also welcomed back one of their own in Freddie Galvis, who they acquired from the Baltimore Orioles in exchange for right-handed pitcher Tyler Birch. Galvis was hitting 249 this season with a 306 on base percentage, an OPS of 720, nine homers and 26 runs driven in across 72 games. Galvis spent the first six years of his big league career with the Philadelphia Phillies, where he was a career 245 hitter with a 287 on base percentage. It provides some depth, and he's only under contract through the end of this year. He's 31 years of age, can play the middle infield. I say minimal return given back to Baltimore. It's a win-win to get somebody back that likes playing in Philadelphia. We're going to go rapid fire through our last few trades because if I keep going individually through all of them, you're going to get a little bit tired and exhausted and feel like I'm just putting weird stuff into your brain. Let's start off with two trades that the Cardinals made that made absolutely no sense. They picked up John Lester from the Nationals in exchange for outfielder Lane Thomas, who struggled in the big leagues but has experience at all three outfield spots. The Cardinals also acquired J.A. Happ and Cash from the Twins in exchange for John Gant and Evan Sisk. The only reason why any of these trades make any sense is that the Cardinals want expiring contracts. They're not in it. So I don't understand why you would give up guys like Gant, Sisk, and Thomas unless you wanted to get rid of money that you would have had to pay some of those guys next year. I just don't understand it. I don't understand either trade. Lester, he doesn't help you win now. You're in third place, and you're a team that has at best a long shot chance of winning the National League Central. I just don't understand why you make these moves, and especially the J.A. Hat move to where you give up two guys that are productive pieces of your organization, especially Gant, who had a sub-5 ERA when you traded him. That I don't understand. The Twins also decided to trade Hansel Robles to the Red Sox in exchange for right-hander Alex Sheriff. Robles has closers experience and can provide some back-end depth for Boston, who is in a tight race with the Tampa Bay Rays in the American League East. One Cubs trade I forgot to mention was the acquisition of Jake Marisnik by the San Diego Padres in exchange for right-handed minor leaguer Anderson Espinoza. Espinoza was once the top-ranked prospect in the Red Sox organization and then the Padres organization, but he has been beset by injuries, in particular to his back, over the course of the last few years, so he is a flyer that the Cubs could potentially take a chance on. Marisnik adds outfield depth and pretty good defense. Houston acquired more bullpen depth by getting Cleveland's Phil Maton in exchange for outfielder Miles Straw. Straw is really fast and a really good defender, can play multiple positions, but he has struggled offensively this year, and the Astros have a lot of organizational depth on the outfield and the infield. Meanwhile, Phil Maton is somebody that can bolster the back end of that bullpen, which already acquired Yimmy Garcia and Kendall Graveman in the past week. So this is a trade that benefits Cleveland for the long term and Houston for the short term. Speaking of Cleveland... Jordan Luplo, an outfielder for the Indians, and right-hander DJ Johnson were traded to Tampa Bay for Peyton Battenfield. Battenfield is the number 29 prospect in the Tampa Bay organization. 
Luplo is one of those interchangeable outfield bats that Tampa Bay can use along with Austin Meadows, Manuel Margot, Brett Phillips, and others. So he's one of those platoon pieces that Tampa Bay loves to have in their outfield. In a one-for-one swap, the Red Sox acquired left-handed pitcher Austin Davis from the Pirates in exchange for infielder-outfielder Michael Chavis. Chavis came on the scene in 2019, hitting 18 homers over 95 games, but he has fallen off the map. He was hitting just 204 this season with seven homers in 73 games, so he gets a fresh start. Meanwhile, Austin Davis had a 5.65 lifetime ERA over 65 appearances. He gets a fresh start as well. I think we've pretty much covered it all. If I missed a trade, my sincerest apologies. But that was the trade deadline this year. It was absolutely bonkers. And I think my winners from this trade deadline are the Chicago White Sox because they bolstered their bullpen and they picked up a need in second baseman Cesar Hernandez. Another big winner from this year's trade deadline is the San Francisco Giants, who I forgot to mention they acquired Tony Watson from the Los Angeles Angels. Three minor leaguers sent to Anaheim in that deal. But the Giants get Chris Bryant, the best player available on the market, and they get some bullpen help in Tony Watson, who has been an elite reliever from the left side over the last few years. Another big winner at the deadline to me, the Atlanta Braves, because they got themselves a lot of depth to compete in a very open division. One more winner, the Milwaukee Brewers. They addressed a lot of needs, and they got better in a lot of places. Eduardo Escobar, Versatile bat with a lot of power. John Curtis adds to their bullpen. Daniel Norris adds to their bullpen. This is a team that I believe has a chance to make the World Series this year. They're not as good as they were in 2018, but they still are pretty good. My losers at the deadline, the Chicago Cubs. They didn't get a lot back for the guys that they traded away, and they traded away a lot of franchise pieces. Same thing with the Washington Nationals, who basically are tearing down a team that less than two years ago won the World Series. Those are my two big losers. My other loser is the Seattle Mariners, because I have absolutely no idea what they were doing during the course of this trade deadline. That's it. That's all for Trades Part 2. We'll be back next time on another edition of MLB Morning Coffee. Have a great rest of your week, everybody.